G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the second episode of our recap on the Serpent Seed Doctrine, which I'm going through here so that we can move into Genesis 4 without dragging that baggage with us. We're starting to see how damaging and divisive that doctrine really is. And as we conclude this recap here with this episode... I think it should serve as a pretty comprehensive guide to why responsible Christians don't buy this view and certainly don't teach it. Once again, we have a couple of clips from earlier episodes of the podcast like we did last week, which are going to form the body of this episode, and I want to thank our listeners for bearing with us, because some of these clips are quite old and not the best quality, but they'll get the message across, and hopefully it'll be of some use to our listeners, particularly if you want to be able to refer someone back to a couple of episodes that will deal with this subject matter in depth, but in a fairly concise manner. So again, this isn't new material to long-time listeners of our podcast, but for those who came in late, it will get you up to speed on our position on the Serpent Seed Doctrine. Now you might be thinking, hey, I came here for the new content for Season 4. And don't despair if that's you, because next week we will launch the season officially with all new content as we begin our exploration of Genesis Chapter 4 and the Line of Cain. That's going to be really interesting, and I'm sure there'll be something new, even for people who've spent a lot of time in this text. So it's definitely worth the wait. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conclusion to our coverage of the Serpent Seed Doctrine. doing a series on the Serpent Seed Doctrine for a few episodes now, and we're not running out of material yet. Today I want to get into some of the things that Jesus said about this as promised last week. So we'll start with Scripture, of course, and here it is from Matthew 23, verses 33 to 36. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all of this will come on this generation. Okay, so this is an interesting passage because we've had people use this to say things like, well, the Pharisees must be immortal or something if they were guilty of the murder of Abel. And uh, some other funny ones like, well, this is obviously a comprehensive condemnation of the Pharisees from A to Z, since Abel starts with A and Zechariah starts with Z. I realise Americans all say Z, don't you? Anyway, uh, that, of course, only works in the English language, whether you are American or not, and uh, not in the Greek that was spoken at the time, and not even in the Hebrew, if you try and take it further back. So that really doesn't work. But this idea of calling the Pharisees snakes and vipers is not Jesus connecting them genetically to the serpent of Genesis 3. There is absolutely no way in which that works, and we've already been through a lot of that in our previous episodes. Another common error that comes out of this passage is the idea that the word generation here refers to some sort of a species, but the Greek word in use, which is genea, refers to the people alive in the current age, literally this generation. Okay, so like we talk about the generation of our parents and the generation of our children, that's what we're talking about here. It's not a species. 
Right, so that's the end of that one. Nevertheless, people have persisted with endeavours to connect the so-called seed of Satan, which we debunked earlier for those who came in late, with a line of evildoers that we're told are some other species living among us. Reptilians blending into our society and plotting to destroy us from within. I was told there'd be aliens, and I'm not leaving till I get aliens. I demand aliens. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll try harder. <laughs> okay, so here's another one. Uh, this is from the Book of Acts, and this time we have a sorcerer. He's a Jewish guy, and his name is an interesting one that I've raised a few eyebrows over the years. Uh, this is Acts 13, verses 6 to 10. They travelled through the whole island till they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? But Jesus is an Aramaic variant, which means son of Jesus, or as it would have been spoken then, son of Yeshua. It doesn't mean antichrist. In fact, it means the opposite because he claims to be a son of Jesus. However, it's clear that his actions prove the opposite of that. And yet again, we have a person telling lies in opposition to God, who is called a child of the devil. I wonder if anyone alive today actually thinks that just because you do something that another person in history has done, you must be related to them. Uh, this next one, I won't spend much time on at all because I've written extensively about it in my book. So if you really want this one, well, the interpretation is not unique to me. You can pick up a Bible commentary. You can just read the Bible itself and have a think about it. But if you want to know my take on it, you can pick up my book, Answers to Giant Questions, and it's written there. But we'll just touch on it very briefly for the sake of being comprehensive. I'm not going to read the whole thing. So Matthew 13, verses 36 to 43. Again, this is referring to Jesus. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, so in verse 41, it should be quite apparent that the weeds getting pulled out of the kingdom include everything that causes sin and all who do evil. It doesn't say anything about people with a different skin color. doesn't say anything about people who are secretly aliens or reptiles or anything else. Sorry, Chris. It just talks about sin and evil, so I don't see any evidence of sacred Nephilim bloodlines or any of that kind of rubbish here. You can also contrast that with verse 43, where it speaks about the righteous, and it doesn't say those people whose skin is white or those people who are actually homo sapiens. It just says the righteous. Yeah, and I still don't get how people can be biased against people who look different to how they look. It's odd. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Here we've got the passages that I mentioned in closing last weekend. It should be evident once again that this idea of connecting Cain and Satan doesn't mean that we're talking about a bloodline or a separate species. Here's the passage from John 8:44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
Once again, we have a connection between the devil and lying, and it says, when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What it doesn't say is, when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is some sort of weird reptile creature, and anyone who tells lies must actually be some sort of alien or weird gigantic beast that isn't human. Uh, pretty straightforward. <sighs> All right, here's another one. This is First John this time, and once again, we have this disconnection between what's right and wrong, the righteous and the unrighteous. First John 3, verses 8 to 10 in the NIV. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Okay, so it should be pretty clear in verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who looks like an alien is not God's child, nor is anyone who is secretly some sort of a reptile or lizard creature. Now, that's obviously not what it says. Again, the children of God are the ones who love their brother and sister. I mean, it couldn't get much clearer. Your brother and your sister. I mean, it doesn't matter what color their skin is. It doesn't matter what country they came from. The Lord has made it very clear. If you don't do what is right, you're not God's child. If you don't love your brother and sister, you're not God's child. And it does not matter what's in your DNA, and it does not matter what you look like. This is nothing more than having love for one another. That's all that God wants. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh, so how are people missing these things? The answers are always right there in the text. I know, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I've already covered the bloodline theory. Um, there will be people who persist because it seems to make so much sense to them because there's a school of thought that exists out there that says that you can follow the descendants of Cain through the Nephilim from Genesis 6 all the way through the biblical narrative to the Pharisees, which is why Jesus was saying these things to them, and it centers around this group that we first find in Joshua 9 called the Gibeonites. So these are the people who conned Joshua into sparing them during the conquest of the land of Canaan. And they continued to live and work in Jerusalem as forced labor under Solomon. You remember these were the guys who, who came and presented themselves to Joshua and they were like, oh, look, our clothes are all worn out and our bread's gone moldy because we come from so far away. So, yeah, we're not locals. And Joshua was like, oh, all right then. Well, that's okay. Um, turns out that they were actually Canaanites. So they got in trouble. Um, Joshua put them under a curse and they were forced to labor for the Israelites from that day Fourth. Now, yeah, they were enlisted in service to help the construction of the temple. Remember back in episode four of this first season, I mentioned this when we talked about megalithic structures and also to assist in the duties of the priests. It is believed that they blended into the society and eventually became the elite classes of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were called the Nethinim. So back when I spoke about the Gnostic text called the Testament of Solomon, I mentioned that there was a possible connection to Scripture in that the construction of the temple was assisted by the remnants of the Canaanite tribes. Yeah, I remember that, that conversation. So where did that idea come from again? So Second Chronicles chapter 8, verses 7 to 8. All the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of Israel, from their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel had not destroyed, these Solomon drafted as forced labor, and so they are to this day. Now, you might object that none of those are the so-called Nethinim. Now, it may be that this statement was a general summary that included more than just the specific tribes mentioned, and I think we'll find that's the case as we go on here. So who were the Nethinim? Well, Nethinim basically means the given ones or subjects. You might find uh, 
Nathanites or Nathanians. Uh, so this was the name that was given to the temple assistants in Jerusalem uh, around the time of the first temple. So it's kind of sad that I have to say this, but it should be obvious enough that just because Nethanim sounds like Nephilim, it doesn't mean that they're connected somehow. <laughs> so you really have to say that? Really? Yeah, I, I did have to say that. Uh, there is no evidence from the book of Joshua that the Gibeonites were of exceptional stature, like the giant tribes such as the Anakim. And obviously they wouldn't be very good at deceiving Joshua into accepting their terms if they were standing there two feet taller than everybody else or whatever the height difference was. Wouldn't have to be that much of a difference. But clearly it didn't make them stand out, so I don't think it's fair that we can say that these were giants. I've already pointed out that the word Nethanim means the given ones, which comes from the root word Natan, which means gift. This is where we get the name Nathan from. It's the same root. Following the practice of things dedicated to temple service, they are given to the Lord. And they're not loaned, they're not sold, they're not borrowed. They are given, and the gift is irrevocable. So that's where the word comes from. It's not related to Nephilim. It was actually King David who appointed them for service of the priests, and you can read that in Ezra chapter 8, verse 20. The same King David who would not rest until the last of the Rephaim and Anakim were wiped out from his land, including, of course, Goliath and his brothers. And Jeremiah 29, verse 5 in the Septuagint attests to that as well. It says, Baldness has come upon Gaza, Ashkelon has been cast off, and the remnant of the Anakim. In other words, they're all gone, they're dead, they're finished, and we've got King David to thank for that. So if David had thought that they were giants or some kind of remnant of the Anakim, then he most certainly would have ensured that they never saw the next generation. But in keeping with what Joshua had established back in Joshua 9, after the deception of the Gibeonites was discovered, they were kept as servants. In fact, they even ended up being put in charge of priestly duties, an offense that God would not pardon. This is Ezekiel 44, verses 6 to 9. Say to rebellious Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, enough of your detestable practices, people of Israel. In addition to all your other detestable practices, you brought foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, into my sanctuary, desecrating my temple while you offered me food, fat and blood, and you broke my covenant. Instead of carrying out your duty in regard to my holy things, you put others in charge of my sanctuary. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh is to enter my sanctuary, not even the foreigners who live among the Israelites. So, you have the Nethanim, formerly known as Gibeonites, formerly known as Hivites. And on the other hand, you have the Kenites. Now, readers of Answers to Giant Questions will know all about the Kenites because I did write about them in the book basically to show that while they appear to be connected back to the line of Cain, the connection is literary, not genealogical or genetic. In other words, they're connected by story to make a point. They're not connected by blood. That's important to remember because not only did we find the Nethanim carrying out temple duties, we also had the Kenites become part of the class of the scribes. So here it is in 1 Chronicles 2.55. And the clans of scribes who lived at Jabez, the Tirathites, Shimeathites, and Sukkothites, these are the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father of the Rechabites. All right, so we have Nethanim in the temple and Kenites among the scribes. So surely this is why Jesus gets all... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, right? Because they're the wrong bloodlines. They're the sons of Cain, the devil's sons, right? Wrong. Jesus is mad at them because they're dishonest. They're liars. They're usurpers. They're greedy. They make it hard for people to express their religion, and they're guilty of killing not only the prophets of the past, but even in their own day, they murdered the father of John the Baptist. Remember Zechariah? His name wasn't included just because it starts with Z. 
I'm just doing that for your Americans. Zed. Again, if you're still hooked up on this idea of the devil fathering Cain, go back and listen to some of the previous episodes. And if you're still convinced the Nephilim have survived to this day, please read my book. But I'm telling you now, this serpent seed doctrine has got to stop because it's racist, it's just plain divisive, and it's driving people out of churches because they spend more time smoking weed and watching YouTube than reading the Bible and getting well-grounded and socialized in a church. There, I said it. I feel better. Uh, Right, so some scripture just to uh, get me back in the right frame of mind here. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28 from the ESV. Here's another one. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, all peoples. Can't be any clearer. Here's Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I'm with you always very in the age. Surely I'm with you always. Can you tell us the story of Lilith? What are the references people get this story from? The first thing that I guess we should say about this is that you don't find Lilith used as a name in the Bible. So why are we talking about it? Well, although you're not going to find this story in Scripture, it's still a very popular idea that there was indeed someone named Lilith who played some role in events that the Bible does tell us about in the early chapters of Genesis. And you might be thinking, well, I didn't see anything in Genesis about someone called Lilith or some other woman even without that name. So what's this all about and how does it fit? Yeah, Tim, so what is this all about? And one other question, how does it fit? Okay, so to answer this question, we should probably go right back to the start. And if we go right back to ancient Sumer, the cradle of civilization, we find that they had a word for a female demon, and it is called Lily. All right, so that's the answer. We can wrap it up there. Oh, that was uh, pretty easy. Uh, Actually, no. If we're going to get the full picture on the story, we need to pull together a few more threads in order to be able to see this the way that the people who came up with this idea were looking at it. Fast forward to the Akkadian Empire and the Akkadians in their language, that was the lingua franca of their day, they had a word for evening or nighttime, and that word is lilu. So these two words that I've just mentioned, lili and lilu, are not related at all. But the Akkadians had another word related to the Sumerian one that we just looked at. The Akkadians also had a word, lili and it was used to describe wind or breath. So now we have the Sumerian lili, meaning female demon. We have the Akkadian lilu, meaning evening, and the Akkadian lili, meaning wind or breath. And then we're going to throw some Assyrian language into the mix. So we're gradually creeping our way through ancient history. The Assyrians had the words lilitu for wind and lilatu for night. You should be able to see by now that we're getting very close to this name that we're looking for. Lilith. 
So what do all these terms have in common? We have wind, breath, female demons, and nighttime. All of these are unseen, invisible forces at work in the world. We see evidence of the wind and its movement because we can feel the breeze and we can see things like leaves and dust being carried along. Darkness is also a powerful force because it conceals the means by which things are done. So the thing that causes stuff to happen at night uses the power of darkness to remain unseen. Nocturnal creatures and birds of prey are classic images of creatures that utilize the power of the air and the cover of darkness to their advantage for hunting and killing and for consuming the dead. Remember the birds of prey that I mentioned when we read Genesis 15 earlier? So naturally, this kind of imagery works well for conveying the attributes of unseen supernatural forces such as demons. I think we're ready to look at some scripture now, and our first passage is going to be the famous Psalm 91, verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day. So here we have the terror of the night, or in Hebrew, pachad la'il. Some people swear that they see Lilith in this passage, but I think that's a bit of a stretch of the language. I think it sounds more like Darkwing Duck. Remember that? I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the ingrown toenail on the foot of crime. I am Darkwing Duck. A better candidate actually comes to us from Isaiah chapter 34, verse 14. The desert creatures will meet hyenas and one wild goat will call to another. Indeed, the night birds will stay there and will find a resting place. Okay, so in this translation, we have night birds. If you've got the old King James Version, you'll have the screech owl. But some other translations give us some interesting results. Uh, we get the night spectre from the Rotherham Bible, 1902. The night monster from the ASV and the Good News translation. We get vampires in the Moffat translation and the Knox Bible from 1950. We get the night hag in the RSV. Uh, it actually comes out and uses Lilith as a proper name in the Jerusalem Bible, 1966, and the Lilith, um, so as a noun there, in the New American Bible. Uh, in the Message Bible, it says, The Night Demon Lilith, Evil and Rapacious. In that little survey of different versions, you'll have noticed the use of different imagery that we just talked about and also the term Lilith used as both a noun and proper noun. I did notice that, and also noticed that you said night hag, um, but also, uh, look, there's too much to say about that. You said vampires. Now we're talking. Yeah, yeah, you get that in some translations, but it is a bit of a stretch from what the Bible is telling us in this context. That's not to say that the Bible is silent on vampires, but I'd be looking elsewhere if I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, night hags, yeah, that's another matter. But it is in the original Hebrew here in this verse that we find the one and only occurrence of Lilith as a biblical term. And I think the best way to read it in this passage is as a type of mysterious creature which is being used to allude to a type of demonic entity. So the King James Version is actually pretty good because the screech owl is a creature that glides silently at night time to hunt and kill and to take advantage of darkness to do its predatory work. And that serves pretty well as symbolic of the nature of demons, in particular this night demon. So where do we get this idea of a demon that hunts and kills at night? That actually comes to us from the ancient Mesopotamian literature about this creature. The Lili was a demon that would come at night time and prey on newborn children. And the way that it was said to attack was to suck the breath out of them so that they died in their sleep. 
Yeah, it actually sounds a lot like what we call uh, today sudden infant death syndrome. But, uh, of course, I'm not suggesting that if it happens, it's caused by a demon. Yeah, that's a good word. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but there's no way that we can just make a blanket statement and say, well, this is what's happening every time it happens. Uh, another thing that this demon was said to be able to do was to attack young men, particularly when they've just gotten married, and it would attack them by raping them in their sleep so they couldn't lay with their wives. Some legends have the demon able to actually bring forth offspring from these attacks. And there are also male demons said to be able to do this to human women. As I said, these are ancient Mesopotamian legends and you don't find any basis to support them in the Bible, at least not from the text we're looking at. Nevertheless, people have made countless endeavours to weave the mythology of Lilith into the Bible. And because of the language employed in the one passage of scripture where it is used in Isaiah 34, People have found plenty of reasons to try and insert the character of Lilith into the creation account in Genesis. You see, in Isaiah 34, verse 11, we have the terms tohu and bohu, which we first encounter in Genesis 1, verse 2. Remember the expression formless and void? This is where it comes up again. So we've been reminded of creation, and then we have this uh, terminology of all these different kinds of demons and weird creatures. Yeah, so this was sort of convenient for rabbis in the medieval period who were looking for an explanation for the problem of evil. With this mention of a well-known night demon from Mesopotamia, in connection with language that brought to mind the creation, all that was left was to go back through the early chapters of Genesis and find some place where this mythology could stick as an explanation for the origin of supernatural evil. We've got to remember that this is a time period in which a lot of Second Temple period literature that we're familiar with today was largely lost to the sands of time, waiting to be rediscovered centuries later. The rabbis didn't necessarily have access to texts that we know today, like the Book of Jubilees or its predecessor in the Book of First Enoch. And again, those books are not canonical, but it doesn't matter. Some parts of these books do provide really good ways of summarising biblical themes and concepts that normally would take a very long time to piece together and to understand, and they just make them quite plain and accessible. That's not to say that everything in the Second Temple period literature is reliable, and again, it's not inspired. So all reading that you do from whatever time period and from whatever source needs to be kept in check by the witness of the Holy Spirit as you read. So for those people who've made use of the Second Temple period literature to assist in putting together the puzzle of the problem of evil, there's really no need to be inserting extra characters into the biblical story. But in a time period where that was inaccessible, the rabbis were left to resort to the Mishnah and the Targums in order to find answers to these questions. And... As they theorised and speculated about commentaries on rewritten scriptures, they found ways to insert Lilith into the story of Adam and Eve so that it gave them opportunity to introduce the concept of supernatural evil entities and the point of their origin. The reasoning was that since Adam and Eve were the parents of all mankind, they must have also been the origin point for other spirits too. And if an encounter with Lilith was enough to bring forth demonic offspring, then all that the story required was some empty time period where that element of the story could be made up and simply slotted in. So we get to Genesis 5 and we find that just such an opportunity presents itself. In verse 3, the text tells us that Adam was 130 years old when he had his son Seth. So these medieval rabbis simply speculated that since Adam had lived a very long time at this point, he must have been having children with somebody else rather than Eve. And that somebody was Lilith. So in this fictional story, the idea is that since there was such a long time that Adam had not had children, he must have helped Lilith bring thousands of evil spirits into the world. Wow, but that really makes me wonder if the rabbis had even bothered to read Genesis 4 because it seems that they had forgotten all about Cain and Abel. 
I know, right? Because they came along before oh. Seth did, during that period before Adam was 130 years old. But, you know, why let facts get in the way of a good story? So even though the character of Lilith did not exist in the original story and the loophole that the rabbis thought they had found where they could insert it into the text doesn't even work, the story became quite popular. Unfortunately, these days it's quite common to encounter people who earnestly believe that Lilith was the first wife of Adam. These days, the story doesn't get used to describe the origins of supernatural evil as much as it does to explain the presence of people outside the Garden of Eden. The story works just as well to explain things like where Cain got his wife from or who he was afraid of when he was sent away. But of course, for listeners to this podcast, you should know quite well, because you've been listening to us from the very start of the first season, that there's no need to insert extra stories into the biblical narrative in order to explain the presence of other people outside of the Garden of Eden. I still maintain that the extra-biblical Second Temple period material is not necessary to explain the origin of evil spirits, but I do think that some of it works quite well to state it quite plainly. So that makes the whole story of Lilith quite redundant, and it's just as well, because more often than not, the story gets used to justify horrible things like racism, and we can all do without that. So, instead of appealing to medieval period speculations on commentaries from late antiquity based on rewritten biblical texts after the Second Temple period, which may be anywhere from one and a half thousand years to two and a half thousand years removed from the original authorship of Scripture, let's just read the Bible and take it for what it says. Because if we're reading it correctly, it's going to fill in a lot of those things that we thought it was silent about because we weren't paying attention and reading it like an ancient Israelite person. So I guess I also need to say that this story does not provide yet another excuse for serpent seed doctrine to make an appearance. The main thing that shoots this down as another potential avenue for serpent seed teachings is that serpent seed comes from the serpent, not from the woman. So if we're going to say that Lilith is the woman, then she's on the wrong team. However, this hasn't stopped some people who are quite happy to conflate the ideas of the serpent and Lilith as one and the same entity. Now, if we're going down the road of viewing the serpent beguiling Eve as some kind of metaphor for sex, then that clearly doesn't work because they're both female. But the most obvious thing is quite simply that if the biblical author had intended to identify the serpent as Lilith, then he could have simply used that name and it's not there. Also, there's no ambiguity around the gender of these entities and the serpent is quite clearly male and Lilith is quite clearly female. Anyway, that's enough of that nonsense. I'm starting to get a bit tired of refuting the same doctrines over and over and over again from people who just keep finding new ways to stick it into the Bible any way they can. It's time for these people to simply admit that they've gotten themselves married to the idea of this false doctrine and they think they can hold the Bible up as sacred to their worldview at the same time, and that is clearly not possible. It's one or the other. If you're going to choose false teaching, you might as well reject the Bible outright, but better than that, get rid of the garbage doctrine, just stick to the plain text of the scriptures. If you're reading it properly, you will be able to answer all your questions anyway. Okay, folks, so that wraps up our coverage of the Serpent Seed Doctrine as an introduction to Season 4 of the podcast, and hopefully this has been enough to disabuse our listeners of the notion that this Serpent Seed Doctrine provides some kind of framework for interpreting Genesis 4, because we're going to find out, of course, that it does not. So with that done, hopefully we can move into our coverage of Genesis 4 starting from next week. And we'll be able to do that reading the text for what it is telling us instead of what it is not. So I'm looking forward to getting into that with you next week. And of course, I'll be back with my regular co-host, Chris Bather, as normal. Well, as normal as that can be anyway. And yeah, we're going to have a great time. So we hope to uh, have you join us. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions.
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Steph on the Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com, Read the blog and have us on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Friends of the Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.